All right, y'all. 6.01 by my clock. Let's all be ones and start. Well, if we were ones, we would have started at 5.59. So <laughs> we'll be whatever we are and start at 6.01. Before we move any further, let's review what we did last week. Um, No worries, no worries. <clears throat> Though it probably says something about your number. Probably. You're late. <laughs> Let's review last week. How would you summarize last week? What did you take away? Real quick, briefly. And in some ways, y'all are at an advantage not to know your number. There's nothing wrong with that. So understanding you, the people around you, yeah, all right. What else? Learned that I may be a particular number, but I have wings or traits from all the others, or several of some more than others. Yeah, wings and traits. We've already determined Larry's a 10, so, which Janice has known for a long time. Um, that was really good. Um, is the Enneagram a diagnostic tool? It wasn't. It, it could be, uh, but it, it was not intended to be a diagnostic tool like Myers Briggs. It was intended to be a tool of spiritual formation. And so the goal is for this to help us be in tune with our own souls, thereby to be in tune with God and to be in tune with everyone around us, our families, our friends, our co-workers. Brittany Plouch is here tonight, our church secretary. She, she's tried to figure the rest of us out for so long. She said she wanted to come to the Enneagram class. So the goal of this isn't just to jump to your number. The goal is to understand yourself, understand people, and also understand something of the face of God. You'll remember last week that I said the Sufi Muslims used a similar tool and said if you look at the whole thing you see the face of God. So the image of God is seen in all of these numbers, in the whole of all of these numbers. And we represent certain emphases within that image. Tonight is kind of the second night of introduction. Most people, when they think of the Enneagram, the first thing they want to do is figure out which number they are, which is why I'm not concerned about what you said tonight. And so they go fast to their number before they understand the thing. And so last week and tonight, I really want to be introductions. Let's understand what the Enneagram is, and then we will go on our journey to try to find our number and figure out who you are. We didn't say last week what the word Enneagram means. It's a compound word in Greek, ennea, nine, gram, drawing, so or graph. So there you go. Why nine? 
We're going to answer that question a little bit later. Why not 15? Why not 100? Why not 1,000? Why not 2? So the Enneagram has been an Enneagram so long as people thought there were nine basic groups of humanity, nine types of humanity. The Enneagram is a model. It's a tool, which means its importance is largely in the hands of those who wield it, just like any tool. It can be used for bad. I could imagine people using this and harming folks and saying, well, dadgummit, I'm an eight. It's just what I do. I'm an eight. I can't not be an eight. That's not the idea. The goal is to mature us, not excuse our immaturity. So the Enneagram is a tool and it's a model and in that way, it's not a perfect representation of humanity. There are so many uh, individuals in all of these numbers that it would be hard to typecast all of those individuals. And so the Enneagram, like any model, breaks down. It would be akin to tonight if I held a globe in front of you and someone said, but that's not the world. Well, of course it's not the world. But it's a, it's a model of the world. And therefore it helps us understand the world, the world if you understand that the globe is a model. The Enneagram is not reality. It's a tool to help us understand reality. Or as one mathematician once said, all models are wrong, but some are useful. All models are wrong, but some are useful. Another thing we talked about last week is that this is really the source of the deadly sins. This is where the concept of the deadly sins comes from. In most of Christian history, we said there were seven. Two dropped out over time. But initially, there were nine deadly sins because... Uh, the sins grew out of the Enneagram. They're the shadows of all the numbers. What's problematic is that all of us, whatever number we are, we cave in on ourselves in that number. We can't think outside of that number. We can't understand or interpret or experience reality outside of that number. We can't relate with other people, ourselves, or God unless we grow up in that number. It either caves in on us or it becomes the firm ground on which we stand. And this is how sin leads to death. If we're immature in our number, whichever number that we are, if we're immature in that number, we will have a hard time relating to God. We will have a hard time relating to ourselves. We will have a hard time loving the people around us well. And they will have a hard time loving us because we'll be so dang hard to love. That all of that leads to death, right? Division, separation, distance, fracturing. And that's what sin does. One Enneagram writer says, if we don't name our sins, they'll come out of our paycheck at the end of the month. Probably true. Julian of Norwich, one of the early church mothers, once said, sin is not breaking rules. Sin prevents us from seeing ourselves as God sees us. Sin is not breaking rules. Sin prevents us from seeing ourselves as God sees us. And so we're letting go of what seems to be good so that we can grasp what is truly good. And if you believe Richard Rohr about the Enneagram, the only thing that will grow you up in your number is, a, is an authentic religious experience. Something that secures you enough to name your insecurity. 
most of us cannot name our insecurities because our identity is tied up in it. That insecurity is how we make sense of the world. But if, if we learn to have faith in something outside of ourselves that is faith-worthy, then we're freed up to be honest about ourselves. We're freed up to be insecure about all the things that we've claimed throughout our whole life. If we're a three, we can be honest and say, my whole life I've gained my meaning through my achievements. Okay? But until you have that experience, that raw human experience of the soul, your ego is too tied up in those achievements and you can't even name it. it. It hurts too much to name it. Last thing and then we'll cover some new ground. We said last week that there's not a whole lot you can do about your number <clears throat> except grow up and mature in it and see the wisdom of the other numbers. Maybe lean heavy on your wings, let both wings inform your number. Uh, be honest about what all of the numbers bring to reality, but there's not a whole lot you can do about who you are except to name it. But there is power in naming a thing. How many times when Jesus encounters the demonic does He say to the demonic, name yourself? What's your name? And I would ask you to think about why. Once you, once you name a thing, then you can begin to address it in reality. But until you name it, it's not even a reality that you can see, really. So what we're trying to do is let our sins name themselves. Or better yet, we're trying to name our sins. How about that? Um, I want to cover a lot of ground tonight. I want to give you just five to ten minutes of where the Enneagram came from uh, because I found this profoundly meaningful to me. I think you will as well. People have been trying to figure out what makes humans humans for a long time. People have been trying to figure people out ever since there have been people. What makes us us? And most scholars think that the Enneagram has many precursors before it became anything like what you see on this board tonight. Ancient astrology. Ancient people looked at the stars and tried to categorize human temperament by the organizations of stars, lunar, uh, waxing and waning. And they came up with 12 types of people, uh, which down through the years was refined, and now we read about it in the newspaper. We call that the what? Horoscope. So people have been doing this for a long time. Pythagoras, ancient Greek philosopher, had a fascination with numbers. He said he, he thought numbers behaved in certain ways and then saw those same behaviors in people and said people became sort of synonymous with numbers. Kind of a weird way of thinking, but that's how Pythagoras saw it. Hippocrates believed humans were made of four temperaments. And who you were depended on what kind of passion lived in you. And by passion, he meant like biological fluid, right? Are you sanguine, melancholic, choleric, or phlegmatic? Uh, he believed that your personality came from whatever the majority of the fluids were that were in you. Carl Jung said that there were three different couplets of human behavior which created nine types of people. Right? 
You could have any match, any matches of those three couplets, and that made nine types of people. So all the way from ancient astrologers to fairly modern-day psychologists like Carl Jung, we've been trying to typecast people. The Enneagram itself dates back, best we can tell, to a Christian desert monk, a Christian desert monk named Avagrius Pontus. He died in 399. Uh, the Enneagram was used by early church uh, fathers and early Christians as a way of understanding ourselves. We don't have a lot of proof of that, except it shows up in a few writings and a few teachings. What we do know is that as Christianity spread and Islam was formed, that, Enneagram, that the Enneagram wisdom began to grow in Islamic thought, particularly amongst the Sufis, which are the mystical Muslims. Okay? We don't hear much about them in the world, but they're an important type of Islam. They refined the Enneagram, and they sort of baptized... <laughs> unbaptized uh, the nine deadly sins and integrated that into their version of Islam and believed them to be their nine deadly sins as well. Over the course of time, all three world monotheistic religions used the Enneagram. Muslims did, Christians did, and Jews did in something called the Kabbalah. Um, and so Christians became interested in this as a way of intercultural dialogue. It was a way to talk to other faiths because everybody understood the Enneagram. Muslims did, Jews did, and Christians did. Um, there was a Franciscan named Ramon Lull who was a 13th century monk who brought it back to the Christian West in 13th, 14th century AD. But it still did not catch fire until quite recently. Um, honestly, Richard Rohr. Y'all hear us talk about that name a lot. Um, sometimes I worry we uh, overutilize Richard Rohr. But I think he, he's resurrected the Enneagram and made it popular, oftentimes to his regret. I told you last week that in Christian tradition you weren't supposed to write about the Enneagram. Because once you wrote about it, it could become commercialized and cheapened in a parlor game. I'm a nine, I'm a six, you're a three, ha, ha, ha. And it loses its spiritual formation content. But he did finally write about it because everyone else was writing about it and uh, um, felt like he needed to correct some things. All of that to say, all of the world's religions has its fingerprints on this thing. It dates back about as far back as we can date Christianity. There is ancient wisdom in the Enneagram. It is not a modern-day fad. It's been around for a while. Any questions about that? Does that weird any of you out? It makes it richer for me. So, one other thing we need to talk about before we get to the numbers themselves tonight, and that's the triads. Um, and this is important to get before you get into your individual numbers. The Enneagram believes that there are three different ways of engaging reality. One is with the gut. One is with the heart. 
or emotions. And one is with the head or reason. The gut could also be the body response to reality. <clears throat> um, all of us lead out of one of these categories. We either, our, our brains lead us into the world, our guts lead us into the world, or our hearts lead us into the world. And each number is a different response out of this primal posture, okay? And you'll begin to see a pattern, we'll talk about it in a minute, of how we relate to that compulsion. Essentially, though, what this is saying is, in all of these ways, we don't experience rea reality, we hide from reality. We either hide from reality in our guts, or we hide from reality in our hearts, or we hide from reality in our brains. T.S. Eliot, the great poet, said, Mankind cannot bear too much reality. And so we fall into habits, we have compulsions, we have natural bents that prevent us from actually experiencing life as it comes to us. Gut people. So these would be eights, nines, and ones. Those are primarily gut people. Here's what that means. We respond viscerally in the body. When reality comes to us, we prejudge it. That's one of the ways we avoid reality is we never get to it. We make our mind up about it before it ever gets to us. We know how we feel about a thing before we've ever lived into it. Okay. The center of gravity is in the underbelly. We viscerally feel things. Or as one writer says, for these people, life is a full body blow every three minutes. Life is a full body blow every three minutes. That's why nines take so many naps. They're tired. Those three minutes add up. They experience life. We experience life without filtering it through the mind and the heart first. We avoid reality by making prejudgments. We're prejudiced people in the literal meaning of that word. We prejudge things before we experience them. And we have an immediate like or dislike of a thing. Okay? We don't have to be taught whether or not we like a thing. We don't have to be taught whether or not we should or shouldn't like a thing. We don't really feel things. We just have gut visceral reactions to reality. Our bodies lead us. Our guts lead us. Does that make sense? Any questions about that? What drives all three of these categories at, at their base is anger. These are the angry people. We're angry? <laughs> Holy cow. Yes. Yes, you are. <coughs> Welcome back. Thank you. Good to be back. <clears throat> Hot Lanner. There's so many Enneagram-related things I want to say right now. Because we, because we are gut people and visceral people, that anger just stews in us. Okay? Oh, boy. Is it coronavirus? 
What? <laughs> okay. <clears throat> um, hang on, I wasn't ready for that. Give me a second. Um, yeah, okay. Um, so, eights, nines, and ones just respond and handle their anger in different ways. But it's all a response to anger, okay? And this primal gut living, okay? Twos, threes, and fours are heart people. Feelings, emotions. But what might be a surprise to you is, not, is it's not so much their own feelings and emotions. It's the feelings and emotions of everybody else around them. Oftentimes, twos and threes in particular don't know how they feel until they know how the people around them feel because they're so out of touch with their own feelings. Okay? They don't have feelings, one writer says, because they have everyone else's feelings. They are often exteriorly warm and emotional. Sweet people. But they don't have feelings. Okay? But reality demands emotional responses from them. It's just not their own emotional responses. Does that make sense? Y'all are looking at me kind of crazy. Let's take twos for example. What did we call them last week? Helpers. There is great virtue in that, like we talked about last week, right? Helping, serving. We all need twos in our lives. They're great people to have around. If you are sick, they will bring you chicken soup, and you'll need it and thank them for it. What's the problem with that, though? When does this become a vice? All right, if they get sick and you don't take them chicken soup, the claws come out, okay? They feel they're hurt, they're wounded. And also, they derive their meaning from helping you. So even if you don't want it, even if you don't ask for it, even if it is not help but the opposite of help, they will help you because that's, how, that's where their identity comes from. And when they really need to do some soul work, they will avoid it by helping you. It's why some people love a good conflict. It's why some people love when people around them are in pain. Because then they can go into action and they don't have to do their own soul work. Right? How do threes avoid their emotions? Achievers, we call them. Helpers avoid their emotions by helping you. Achievers, performers, avoid their emotions how? By doing things for themselves. By you praising them. By you saying, gosh, you're so pretty and handsome and successful and you make a lot of money and you've never failed in your life and how do you get all this done in one day? How many hours are in your day? I only have 24 hours in my day. And their ego, now they're somebody. But meanwhile, they're, they're not doing their own soul work and they, they are out of touch with their own heart. Or 
Maybe we could say they're entrapped in their own heart. They have no meaning in their own heart. Um, these people are driven by feelings, emotions. But they're more transmitters than transformers. Does that make sense? Richard Rohr says, if you don't transform your pain, you will transmit it. And so, if a, if a heart-oriented person is in a room full of anger, they're likely to get angry. If they're in a room full of peace and joy, they're apt to be joyful. Um, they transmit whatever comes their way, but they lack the capacity, they struggle to have the capacity to transform it. Okay. And then the head people, fives, sixes, and sevens. These people substitute thinking for living. Um, they don't want to live reality before they interpret it first. They don't want to live reality before they understand it first. And so they like deep thinking because once they understand something, then they can control it. It gives them a sense of control, which manages fear, which is so pronounced in all of these numbers. The head trip people are fearful people. But going to the brain and thinking about it allows them to handle that fear and it gives them a sense of control. Once they can understand it, then they can control it. They love rational systems. This is one of the reasons I think Reformed theology is so popular in our day. It's the notion that God's sovereignty just kind of explains everything. And it makes such an airtight theological system that you don't have to wrestle with anything anymore. And it works for people. It simplifies things. And you can understand it in your head and you don't have to think about it anymore. You don't have to think about why bad things happen to good people anymore. You don't have to wrestle with that. You don't have to read Job. Um, just know it. Know the answers. right? I want you to think about how small of a world, though, we all would live in if we only experience reality if we can understand it first. Think about how small that world has to be. How cramped that world has to be. And I want you to think about how many things you experienced even on this day that you don't completely understand. Do you know how it works when you flip a light switch and the light comes on? And if you have to understand that before you're willing to flip the switch, um, how many of us know what the coronavirus is? How many can talk about it in such a way that you wouldn't be embarrassed to talk about it. I can't. I don't, I don't understand. I just know it's bad and we should take proper precaution. But if you live in your head and you need, you have to understand a thing before you're willing to engage it, then that world becomes pretty small. Right? As I said, these people are living by fear. Not so much denial. Um, I think denial is more in the gut triad. I think these are more of your deniers. These are the people that just try to control life. 
and they do it in their brain space. It's their brains that lead them through life. Which is surprising when you think about some of these like a seven. A seven doesn't come off as a head person. But they are. We'll talk about that a little bit. Until you understand the triads, the basic trinity of our being, the, the individual numbers don't make a whole lot of sense. But we're so quick to jump to our numbers that we skip a lot of this stuff. Before we move on, what are your comments and questions? And then we'll talk about the individual numbers and how they fall into the triads. Yeah? <laughs> well, we are all... We all have guts, we all have brains, and we all have feelings, right? And so that's true. It's also true that when we go number by number, even the number that is least like you, you will find something with which you can identify, right? But this is just primal posture of life. This is the way most of us go through life heavily in one of these areas. And even more specifically in one of the ways these areas is manifest. Does that make sense? So we, do, we all have these things. It's a trinity of being. We, we have guts, feelings, and head. Sir, I have a question along mm -hmm. those lines. Um, I'm trying to think of this as how people can you know, identify with all three but then still only have the one half. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, left brain, right brain. Uh-huh. Yeah, a um, couple of things to say. One is you're, there's two different models, like how we understand right, how the brain works, and then understanding our whole humanity. One of the reasons the gut part is so hard for people to understand is that in the Western world we don't we don't see this as real a whole lot. We're so brain we're brain people in the West. By the way, in the Bible, when it says Abraham went into the tent and knew Sarah. What does that mean? When we say no, we all go, we think knowing is headspace. But in the ancient world, knowing also involved your body. Abraham didn't go introduce himself to Sarah in the tent, right? They, they did other things in the tent. It's because knowledge was experiential. You lived knowledge. You, you couldn't read a book about Sarah and know Sarah. You had to know her to know her. But we're so brain heavy. And, and the danger with these people is that they fall over with their brainness. It topples their humanity. They're top heavy. Uh, the post-enlightenment world is top heavy. That's why since we have South African folks in our room, when you go to South Africa, they're dancing. And it's bodily. And it's not stuffy theology. They experienced their worship because they weren't an enlightenment culture. The enlightenment didn't touch them like it touched North America. Okay? And we go over there and it shocks us and they come over here and say, God, that was dry and crusty. Right? Right? Isn't that what you said Sunday? That sermon lasted forever. Dry and crusty. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. 
Um, back to your question, Ashley. I do think as you grow up in one number, you will take on the characteristics of other numbers. That is a sign that you're not collapsing in on yourself, right? But immature people just live here. Immature eights only live in eights because that's how they made it through their life. It's what they were good at. They over-identified with their gifts. And, and they can't live outside of those gifts. It's, it's how they got their job. It's how they got their spouse. It's, how they, it's why their parents patted them on the back. But then they grow up and, and this sort of collapses in on them unless they learn the wisdom of their wings and begin to see the wisdom of the whole thing. So I think, I think all of us in this room, I think all people are one of these primal numbers and there's not much we can do about it. For some people, a wing may be stronger on one side of their number or they, may, they might have grown up in their eightness and taken on some of the virtues of these other numbers that balance them out. And so, a mature eight will look different than an immature eight. You mentioned last week something about the lines. It looks like a pentagram on the yeah. thing. So those are all going to jump from one triad to another. I mean, is that important to know? I mean, like we're talk- when we're talking about how we experience all of them, the, how we cross the circle. Yeah. I'm a five. Yeah. It does. I'm a, I'm about to unlock that mystery for you. So just hang on. I'll I'll tell you exactly why that is. Any other questions about the basic triads? What about hearts? What is the one word other than anger and fear that describes the heart? Uh, just emotions, feelings. Oh, okay. Um, it's not one in particular. Not one in particular. Okay. It's just they live in the. undefined emotional vortex, could we say. Life is messy for those people. For, and, then they, they, and then they respond to that messiness in different ways. But it's, it's just this emotional cauldron of confusion for them. So, we have our triads. We've got gut people, mind people, and heart people. The center number in each triad, so let me start over here. The center number is the most pure number of each triad. By pure I don't mean best because no number is better than another number, right? What I mean by that is it's where the compulsion is at its purest place. The reason being is, if I'm a six, I'm a head person. The wing to my right is also a head person. And the wing to my left is also a head person. Which makes me... (laughs) Exactly. You got it. Richard Rohr says these are the double compulsive numbers. They so identify with their compulsion. And because they so identify with their compulsion, it's hard for them to see it. 
Tonight, if you've been talking Enneagram stuff for a long time and you don't know what you are yet, my suspicion, this, this isn't 100%, my suspicion is that you're a 9, 3, or a 6. It's just hard for you to see it because that compulsion is so pure and strong in you. In the same way that I did with sixes, nines are gut people. Both wings are still in the gut. Threes are heart people. Both wings are still in the heart. And that's what I mean by pure compulsion. You're the purest manifestation of that compulsion. These are the folks who are most masked from themselves because it's so natural to them. They're so gut. They're so mind. They're so um, heart. Nines are so angry, they're out of touch with their anger. What did we call nines last week? Peacemakers. So I'm a nine. When I first read that, when I dabbled in the Enneagram at first, I thought, ah, what a virtuous thing to be a peacemaker. <laughs> but the thing is, it's not so much other people's peace that I'm fighting for. It's my peace. That's where I start. And I don't want any of y'all screwing with my peace. And so, I just kind of keep it at arm's length. If there's conflict, it'll get better tomorrow. Time heals all wounds. So I'll just let it, let it be. Nines are really good at numbing. Um, one of the tendencies of nines is addiction. Nines are very susceptible to addiction because that physical act feeds that numbing process. But even, I'm not addicted to anything that I know of except coffee. I need it to wake me up because I need sleep. Sleep can be a numbing thing for nines. We retreat into our naps, all right? But we just kind of go through life. The shock waves of reality are too much for us, and so we just kind of snooze through it. We're all right. You're all right. Everything's all right. Let's be all right. And if you're not all right, it's all right. Right? But all the while, what I'm doing is denying my anger. I'm avoiding reality. I'm not living in this moment. I'm just kind of cruising if I'm an immature nine. Threes. All they're achieving is an effort to hide from their emotions. Do what? I'm, I'm struggling up here. Um, <clears throat> so, one thing I didn't mention up here. For a nine, do you know what the, sin, what the sin of a nine is? The deadly sin of a nine? Sloth. And by that we don't mean just laziness. That's not it. It just means we don't live. We don't experience reality. We just kind of mope our way through reality. But trying to keep our internal peace. Don't go messing with my peace. Threes achieve so that they can hide from their emotions. How about that? Are you a three? Yeah. Or a two? Three and seven. 
You gave me the black one. Have you ever been around someone in grief? Someone they've loved has died. And they say, I'm just going to stay busy. I'm just going to stay busy. There's some health to that. And I, that's not bad. I'm not saying it's bad. But I'm saying you put that on steroids and that's a three. They don't deal with their deep stuff because they just keep achieving. Look at my resume. Look at how good I am. But they don't have a sense of that goodness. They need you to see their goodness. And so it's performing. Wherever they are, they're performing. And they need an audience. And they're really good actors. They will walk into a room and charm everyone in that room. And then they'll go into the next room and be a totally different person and charm everyone in that room. They're chameleons socially. Okay? But they are the core of heart people. This is all an effort to avoid their own emotions. Sixes are head people. They are the most fearful. Fear is their deadly sin. I can't remember. I honestly don't know. Um, can any of y'all remember? Enneagram people? Shame? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Why would shame be the deadly sin of a three? It means you failed and everybody saw you fail. Oh, what that does to a three. Shame. Thank you. Um, sixes cannot get out of their heads. When they receive news, they think, what is the worst that could happen? Because that's probably what's going to happen. And it's where their brain goes. Okay? They are the most fearful people. And because they live in fear, they don't trust their own authority. They need external authorities. They need the church to tell them what to think and believe. They need the preacher to tell them what to think and believe. They need the country to tell them what to think and believe. Okay? We call them loyalists because they are very loyal to institutions. But it's not really because they're loyal to the institution. It's because they need an external authority. Because they live in so much fear. Okay? So nines, threes, and sixes are the purest form of each compulsion. Does that make sense? Because they're at the dead center of each compulsion. A loyalist. They go by different names, by the way. In fact, some people say you shouldn't title the numbers. But just for help, for communication's sake. By the way, nines, Drew, back to your question. We'll talk more about this when we go to individual numbers. We're going to get way down in the weeds with each number, okay? But for nines, when they're in a place of health and security, when they're, when they're feeling good about themselves in reality, where do they tend to go? Threes. And when they're in stress, where do they tend to go? The previous number in each triad. So now we're talking uh, two, five, and eights are the extreme number of each compulsion. Okay? 
while the purest numbers are the hardest to spot, the extreme numbers are the easiest to spot because they're extremes. Okay? Um, it, they're obvious. Some people call these the obvious compulsions. So twos are the most emotional people. They will cry with you. They will laugh with you. They will be sweet. You can spot them with smiles on their faces. Even They may be thinking bad thoughts of you. But their face will say, I love you. Okay? Um, but they care so much about your feelings because they don't want to deal with their own. And that help is very emotionally charged. Okay? There's deep emotions attached to that help. When a helper doesn't feel appreciated, mm, hell hath no fury like an unappreciated too. And in some ways, all that work and all that help is tied up in their identity. It doesn't grow from their love. It springs from their identity. Does that make sense to y'all? Do y'all see the difference there? How... Okay, that's, yeah. That's fair point. That's crazy. Yeah. Just that I mean, just, just so people are like, oh, crap. Like, I can't do anything. <laughs> so, so another thing that I said last week is I'm making fun of every number, all right? Yeah. So part of this is an exercise in humility. And if you walk away from the Enneagram feeling good about yourself, you probably looked at it wrongly, okay? But I'm not saying that there's no healthy expression of a two. I do want you to see the difference, though, when I say joy is in a tough spot, and I love joy. How can I serve joy? Joy, how can I serve you? You can do A, B, C, D. Here you go. And it gives me joy to love joy. And that's it. But that is different than I don't want to deal with my own junk. So, Joy, can I help you? What do you need help with? Joy, Joy, what do you need? And I'm at her house cooking her green bean casserole, and she hates green beans. I needed to help her more than she needed the help because it was all about me. I once went to a hospital visit with another pastor. It was a patient who had had heart surgery and they were asleep the day after their surgery. We walked in the room and there we are and he reaches to wake up the patient and I said, no, don't, don't wake them up, they're sleeping. It's the day after, do not wake them up. And he said, no, I'm going to wake them up. I said, don't wake them up. He said, no, if I don't wake them up, they won't know I was here. <laughs> Which was true, by the way. <laughs> I'm not debating the truthfulness of that. But what I am saying is, did he go to the hospital to take care of that person? Or did he go to the hospital to be sure that person knew that he came to visit them? That's an unhealthy two. Or a two in a two moment is probably what that was. Was a two acting really, really two. Fives are obvious brain people. They're the, they're the nerds, 
um, the people who research things ad nauseum and drive you up the wall with it. They're the people who cannot tell you how they feel. And the truth is, they cannot meet you where you are feeling. Because all, they, all they're dealing with is how they're thinking. Does that make sense? There are some... I'm not trying to get into anybody's marriage or anything in this room today. <clears throat> That's right. That's right. Don't say amen. Don't poke. No elbows. Um, they, are, they are uncomfortable with their own feelings. They're uncomfortable with anybody else's feelings. And it's that control center of the brain which is really where they want to live. It weirds them out when they don't understand something. I've pastored some engineers in my life. I want engineers to be fives. I want them to be black and white people. I, I don't want engineers building bridge over, bridges over the Arkansas River thinking, oh, it's a, a little ambiguity is okay. I don't want that. I don't want people building airplanes who are comfortable with emotions. <laughs> but the problem is those people get married. And building an airplane is not marrying a person. And some of the hardest people I've ever pastored were fives who were uncomfortable with ambiguity. The reason they were uncomfortable with ambiguity is ambiguity says you can't, you can't define it. And they were uncomfortable with any reality they could not define because it left them out of control. These are the obvious head people. And then eights. These are the people who lead with their guts, except they process their anger by punching, punching it out at you. They're the forces of nature, the, the people who will come after you. They like challenges. We call these challengers. They're the people who will bring up politics at Thanksgiving dinner, especially if they're the only one who is where they are, because they, they like a good fight. And they will judge you by how you respond to that fight. If you say, I'm not going to fight with you, they will not respect you. They need the fight because it's how they deal with their inner anger. They come punching it at others. Nines, we numb ourselves to anger. Let's just all get along. We hate eights when they come out punching because now you're messing with my inner hmm, zen. But eights love a good challenge and it's obvious. Does that make sense? They can come off as angry people. And you'll remember last week I said we have a word for female eights. We don't, we don't have a lot of respect for female eights. A, nine eight, a male eight is a leader. A female eight, you get it, isn't. The following number in each triad is, um, did I do that right? Yeah, the following number in each triad is the conflicted number. So ones, fours, and sevens. These are the people, they're still in their triad, but they almost try to reverse the thing. They're conflicted people. So a one 
still a gut person, an anger person, but they avoid reality because they try to fix it before they encounter it. That's why we call them perfectionists. Good enough is not good enough. These people can be super hard on themselves. The flip side of that is they can be really hard on you. An, an immature one will be really, really hard on you and pretty lax on themselves, right? Perfectionists have a hard time living in the moment as it is because it's always a flawed moment. They have a hard time loving you for who you are because you're flawed and they can see it. They can see it better than any other number on the Enneagram. They see your flaws. And so they have a hard time loving you. They love the idealized version of you that doesn't exist. They don't love life as it is. They love life as it should be. But it never is. And so they're always reforming. There's some virtue in that. Perfectionists call us to our highest ideals. But when can you ever say, ah? A lot of times perfectionists are, are very clean people. They realize they can't do anything to clean up the world's messes and so they just go to the bathroom and clean the bathroom because they can control that. And their bathroom will be clean. Um, I'm not naming any names. <laughs> yeah. Um, they want to perfect reality before they experience it. Okay. Of course, the problem when you're a one and you clean your bathroom is that the next day you're going to brush your teeth and take a shower. Right? And so where does your peace come from? Ones are conflicted gut people. They're trying to fix it. Fours are conflicted heart people. Uh, we call these folks romantics. Some people call them aesthetics. These are the artists. These are the people who want to stand out. They don't really know what to do with their emotions. They don't know what to do with your emotions. And so they say, let's just make it look pretty. They are very big on appearance. Beauty means a lot to them. Um, sacrament and image and icon mean a lot to them. I wonder if a lot of fours don't migrate to the Episcopal and the Catholic churches because they like beauty. And they, they're conflicted in their emotions and so they just don't want to feel what everyone else is feeling. If everyone else in this room is happy, a four will process that by thinking of a reason why they shouldn't be happy. Yeah, but. Or if everyone else in this room is sad, they'll be the one at the back of the sanctuary at a funeral telling a joke, making everyone laugh. Because they want to stand out. It's how they make meaning 
out of their emotions by not feeling what everyone else is feeling. They're natural artists. They're natural creative thinkers. Many of them take great pride in how sad they are. Um, who was it who said, what a happy thing to be so sad? And that comes pretty naturally to a four. Melancholy comes pretty natural to them. Um, empathy with what number? Any of them? Um, yeah, it comes in a lot and it comes in in large part. You know, part of it is if you don't do your own soul work, it's hard to empathize with anyone else because your, your, your own soul is a black hole. But once you make peace with yourself, once you are transformed internally, then you're liberated to feel what other people are feeling. How do I feel what y'all are feeling if I don't know what I'm feeling? Which, by the way, is one of the challenges of a nine. Right? So empathy comes easier for some numbers than others. Twos look like empathy. They're the first number you would look to when you say the word empathy. Those are the empaths, twos. But they're not empathetic. They need to help. It's not that they want to help. Immature twos. Right? And sevens. What did we call sevens last week? So fives are investigators. What are sevens? Adventurers. There's other words for it that are just as good. You would never think this is the person who always wants to go on vacation. This is the person who always wants to have a good time. They go from adrenaline high to adrenaline high to adrenaline high. You would not think of a seven as a head person. Just like you wouldn't think of a one as a gut person. And you wouldn't think of a four as a really a heart person, though they can get really caught up in their heart. But sevens are conflicted. The only way they know to get out of their brain space is to go mud riding or snow skiing or jump out of an airplane. Okay? They will always be the life of the party. They bring fun everywhere they go. But what they will not handle is your pain. And they will not handle their pain. These are the people who don't show up for Ash Wednesday services. These are the people who don't like funerals. Um, when I was at Spring Creek in Oklahoma City during Lent, like we do here, we put a cross on the stage, except at Spring Creek we put it right in the middle of the choir. We sp split our choir on both sides of the cross. And one day in the handshake line after church, otherwise known as 10 feet from hell, um, <laughs> A lady on her way out of church that day said, I, I wish we wouldn't do that. I said, what? And she said, put the cross right in the middle of the choir. I said, it, it's Lent. We're going to talk about the cross. We're Christians. We're going to... And she said, it just makes me so sad. I know what she was saying, but that was a very... I don't know that she was a seven, but that was a very seven thing. They will not handle pain. And so the only way they know to... How do they deal with joy then? They create it everywhere they go. They have a good time. 
They won't sit still. They use adventure as a cure for fear. Richard Rohr says they whistle. And by that he doesn't mean they whistle. He means they're joyful when everyone else in the room is like, really? But it's all an escape mechanism. It's a way to not... It's a way to keep reality at arm's length. All of these numbers, the sin is an effort to keep reality at arm's length. My soul at arm's length. Your soul at arm's length. God at arm's length. Let's just have a good time. Sevens are eat, drink, and be, be merry, people. Let's just party. We, we're not going to make sense of much of this. Let's just party. Let's have a good time. We're only here for a while. Let's eat, drink, and be merry. Epicurean. Over the next few weeks, we're going to dive into these numbers. We're going to start with gut people and move our way around. Um, the trap for so many people is that they pick their number before they understand the system. Right? All of these numbers are interrelated, and you have some of all of these in you. We can learn from all of these numbers. And I bet you have each number somewhere close in your life where you go to work every day, the people you eat dinner with every night, the people who sit on your pew on Sunday mornings, and you think, how in the world did they think that? Um, so I hope that you'll come and not, not be too quick to identify. Learn first and then identify, okay? Comments, questions. Oh, they say think of yourself not as you are today, but yourself as a 20, 21-year-old as you do this. Because at that age is when you're old enough to kind of know who you are, but you haven't figured out all the ways to hide it yet. Right? So think of yourself as a 20, 21-year-old. Maybe that'll help you as we move through this. Okay? Comments are... Yeah, yes. No, absolutely. Yeah. You, yourself as a 20 or 21 year old. Yes. <clears throat> Any questions, real quick? We'll bring them after we're done then. Every Facebook message. Um, as I did last week, and as I will do in the preceding weeks, we're going to finish with a little bit of soul work. It, soul work does not come naturally for us. Because of all these reasons, we've got really good defense mechanisms and we've tricked ourselves. And so what I would ask of you each week is to, to center yourself as we finish and listen not to me. But I'm going to try to put things on the table that prompt you to listen to your own soul or to the soul of your spouse or the soul of your kids or the soul of your coworker who drives you up the wall and just pay attention to deep things. Okay? Tonight I'm going to read a poem to you. This will not be the case every week. Last week it was Jesus. Tonight is a poem called Ask Me by William Stafford. It's short, just two stanzas of seven lines a piece 
But let these words in your soul and let these words become a way of uh, internal prayer tonight. Hear what this poem is saying. Better yet, hear what this poem is asking of you. Sometime when the river is ice, ask me mistakes I have made. Ask me whether what what I have done is my life. Others have come in their slow way into my thought and have tried to help or to hurt. Ask me what difference their strongest love or hate has made. I will listen to what you say. You and I can turn and look at the silent river and wait. We know the current is there, hidden, and there are comings and goings from miles away that hold that stillness exactly before us. What the river says, that's what I say. I want you to focus on two phrases the second time, and we'll call it a night. One is, in the first stanza, ask me whether what I have done is my life. What a stupid question. What a profound question. And the second is, what the river says, what that frozen river says, that's what I say. Listen once more. Sometime when the river is ice, ask me mistakes I've made. Ask me whether what I have done is my life. Others have come in their slow way into my thought, and some have tried to help or to hurt. Ask me what difference their strongest love or hate has made. I will listen to what you say. You and I can turn and look at the silent river and wait. We know the current is there, hidden, and there are comings and goings from miles away that hold the stillness exactly before us. What the river says, that is what I say. Ask me if what I have done is my life. Think on that between now and next week. So as we look at each number, we're going to use a chart. Booyah! Uh, With each number, we're going to talk about uh, different things that I think will help you get a grasp of the number, or at least the things that help me understand the number. We're going to talk about self-image, avoidance, what each number avoids, temptation, the qualities of Christ present in each number. Animals, that'll be a fun one. Country, that's a fun one. Uh, Richard Rohr says it's not just people that have numbers, but churches have numbers. 
and countries have numbers. Cultures have numbers. Defense mechanism, your pitfall, your root sin, your invitation, your fruit of the Spirit, and your style of speaking. If you want to take these home with you tonight, you're welcome to. Uh, I would prefer you not to have a separate one every week. So if you can't hang on to it, just grab one next week. But we'll begin making our way through this chart and talking about each number beginning next week and moving forward, assuming we're not all quarantined next Wednesday. Sound good? Uh, however y'all want to do it. Who wants one? Maybe that'll be... All right, y'all just come grab them on your way out. How about that? I'll bring them back next week. Thank you all for being here. Hope this has been worth your time. Peace be with you.